Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Luxe mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Vision with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, there is so much soap news happening right now. Um, so first of all, over at y Michelle Morgan will be making visits as the late Hillary. And Melissa Claire Egan is coming back to the show as Chelsea. Uh, so on Days of Our Lives, Billy Flynn and Kate Mancy are already back filming as Chad and Abigail, and we will see them again this fall. I actually spoke to Billy for an interview in our new issue where he opens up about his surprise exit and return to the soap. You know, it's very revealing and definitely worth a read for his fans. It is an exceptional read. Um, and General Hospital has just confirmed that Rebecca Buttig is set to reprise the role of Hayden this summer. So I say your move, B&B. <laughs> well, we know Jacqueline McKinnis-Wood will be back airing again soon as Steffi. Uh, and, of course, Jackie was front and center at the daytime Emmys on Sunday night where she took home her first trophy, and it was for lead actress. Now, Jackie had a really terrific year on B&B with Steffi's affair with Bill coming to light and her split with Liam. And I know she got our Performer of the Week at some point and was definitely deserving of the award. But I feel going in, the favorite really seemed to be GH's Maura West. So there was almost like a feeling of shock in the room when Jackie's name was called. Yeah, I felt like you I felt like you could feel that too in the air, you know. And so, sometimes in certain categories there's just a sense that it's someone's year, if you will, and with all of the Uber drama that Mora played in the wake of the murder of uh her on-screen daughter Kiki, I, I felt like she definitely was the front runner and I I have to say um, in industry circles, it also seemed to me like there was so much buzz around John Lindstrom's dual performance on GH as Kevin and Ryan that he seemed to have the edge in that category. Uh, but as we saw, the lead actor award went to his co-star, Maurice Bernard, who plays Sonny. Now, maybe I wasn't expecting him to win because he wasn't expecting to win. He had admitted to me beforehand <laughs> that he's had years where he was expecting to win and he didn't and he felt badly but that this year he was like pretty certain he wasn't going to win and he didn't prepare a speech for that reason. And while I know that there are certainly people that he had uh, that he wished he'd remembered to thank Frank Valentini, the executive producer, uh, first and foremost, what we saw in Mo's like off the cuff speech was pure heartfelt emotion. And you and I and the audience, I think we both got like verklempt watching him. 
Oh, my God, we did. I was so excited for him. You know, I feel like Maurice is one of those actors who you just assume has a mantle full of Emmys because he's always so strong and solid. But to think that he hasn't won since 2003 is mind-boggling. So even my heart felt full when he was making his speech, and he just seemed, like, so surprised. Uh, and then we got to have our little moment where we cheered for him when he came up the aisle during a commercial break with his son Joshua. Yeah. Um, I think another big surprise of the night was YNR winning Best Drama Series, Best Writing, and Best Directing. Uh, not because they didn't deserve it, but because those stories were written by Mal Young, who recently left. So he certainly went out with a bang. And, you know, when I saw him after at the CBS party, he walked in with an Emmy in each hand, and he told me that he felt he really accomplished all that he set out to do, and actually all that he outlined in the first interview that he and I ever did together. Um, and the CBS party, by the way, was awesome. Uh, CBS daytime honcho Angelica McDaniel told me it was like the quinceanera she never had. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, the Emmy parties are such a blast every year. Um, I had so much fun at the GH after party, but even the pre-Emmy parties, I, I went to a reception for the nominees at this beautiful, like, castle-like estate in Pasadena on Wednesday night before the ceremony and had just the greatest time uh, catching up with folks from all the shows. I had a great conversation with Peter Bergman, YNR's Jack, <coughs> um, and James DePaiva, who was most recently GH's Dr. Bench, but is best known as One Life to Live's Max. And the two of them have been friends for decades from doing personal appearances together back in the 80s when Peter was Cliff on All My Children. Uh, Jim told me this great story about when they did an appearance together near James's hometown and paid a visit to James's mom. He said that walking into his house with Cliff Warner, it was like he was bringing Jesus home to meet his mom because she was such a big <laughs> fan. Um, there were some newbies. That's awesome. uh, yeah, that tickled me. And there were some newbies that I had never met before, like YNR's new Anna, Lauren Lott, and Sophia Matson, who's Sasha on GH. It was just so fun uh, to meet them for the first time. And their excitement over, you know, being part of their first Emmys was absolutely contagious. You know, there's also a cocktail reception before the show on Sunday, and actually I got to catch up with Kevin Spiritus, who used to play Craig on Days, and he just won an Emmy for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Digital Drama Series for After Forever, which is a series he created with former Days writer Michael Slade. Um, the series also got the Outstanding Digital Drama Award, and Kevin was just so happy, um, and it was amazing. I had actually gone to the premiere of After Forever here in New York, and I said to him after, you know, you deserve every award that you're going to get for it. Uh, it was such a great production. And it's always so amazing to see people rewarded for good work. Yes, I remember how highly you spoke of that after that screening. Um, and I have to say that I, I felt the same way when Haley Aaron picked up her statuette for Younger Actress. She is just such a sweet person. And as she was making her way to the stage, it dawned on me, like, OMG, Alex Trebek is going to give her her award. She is the biggest Jeopardy fan that I have ever met. And I was so thrilled for her <laughs> to, you know, not only be recognized for her great work, but to get her Emmy from someone who she considers a hero, Alex Trebek. Now, what could be better? Um, and you and I collided later on that night at the GH after party. But tell me about the, the Days Bash that you attended. Uh, well, the first person I saw was Robert Scott Wilson, uh, who plays Ben. And, of course, we immediately got into some Yankees-Red Sox talk after that. Um, I had a really nice chat with Olivia Rose Keegan, who plays Claire, who's just been so amazing lately. And she actually took over our social media for the night. 
Um, I caught up with Kate Mancy, who's back as Abigail, and just so many others. It was the nicest party that Bruce Evans from NBC hosted. Um, and I actually afterwards got in a car with Daisy's head writer, Ron Carlovati, who used to be the head scribe at GH because he wanted to say hi to his old pals at the GH party. And that is where I reconnected with you. Um, now, someone I saw on the red carpet was Suzanne Rogers, who plays Days of Our Lives as Maggie and is our guest today. And I'm actually here with her on site at the Days set. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. My pleasure. So let's start at the beginning of your performing career. Oh. Uh, you moved to New York City from Virginia and yes. became a rock cat. Yes, I was 17. Um, well, first of all, tell us what that experience was even like. Well, I auditioned the year before when I was 16 on my Easter vacation. And they said, uh, well, you've missed the auditions and write us a letter next year and maybe you can come in for the auditions, which I did. And they sent me a telegram to come up to New York and audition. And I was one of 71 girls. And unlike most of the other auditions for other musicals or whatever, you audition in a group. There you don't. You audition singularly and everybody sits around and watches you. So a little pressure, <laughs> a little bit of pressure. Anyway, they took three of us. And the day of I, I mean, they said, you know, with the three of you that passed on to the next and the day I graduated from high school, I got a telegram to report to Radio City. Oh, my gosh. And it was, that was it. I mean, I, you know, you didn't have time to get nervous or, or all you were, were excited and you were 17 and you were going to get paid for something that you had been doing all your life because I started dancing when I was a little kid. You know, my mother's best friend was a dancing teacher and they glued taps to my little walking baby <laughs> shoes. I mean, I kind of was predestined to be a dancer, you know. So anyway, that, that was, uh, that, that was my first foray into this business. Well, how often did you perform? Every day. You work seven days a week, five weeks straight, and then you're supposed to have a week off. But you don't really. You go off on a Wednesday night. You're off Thursday, Friday, Saturday. On Sunday, no matter where you are in the country, you have to call in and you ask for yourself so you don't have to pay for the call. Oh. <laughs> and they say, uh, oh, she's not, she won't be back until Tuesday at, at 9. And then that was your call, Tuesday wow. at 9. So that's what I did, yeah. <laughs> So anyway, it was it was exciting and it was lovely and and um I had a I had a great time. A lot of a lot of lessons I learned. <laughs> Respect. <laughs> I'm trying to picture 17-year-old Suzanne Rogers living in New York City. What was that experience like? Well, it was I had there were some relatives that lived out in Forest Hills and um they said, "Well, we'll take her in." You know, uh you know, just because I didn't know where I was going to live. At first, I went to the mom said, just go to the YWCA. So I went to the YWCA, and they said, oh, we don't have any room. And, and of course, like in, in home, of course there's room. And I sat in the middle of the lobby crying on my suitcase. You know, and they said, get her out of the lobby. Get her out. Get her out. And so there was another rocket staying there, and they put a rollaway bed in her room. And I stayed there for a few days until I, these people out in Forest Hills said, come on, come on, you can come out here for a while. So yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty scary, but it was like, I thought, well, wait a minute, you've got to have room for me. <laughs> I mean, like I'm somebody, you know, or something. Um, and I'm then a I eventually roomed. Yeah. Well, eventually there was a rocket that lived. She said, well, I have an apartment and she said, uh, I could use help with the rent. And they told us not to take an apartment that was more than our weekly salary. And our weekly salary 
was $70 a week. Wow. Well, you know, after taxes, that wasn't too much. But anyway, she said, uh, yeah, I live on the east side. And I went, oh, I can't afford that. Because by that time, I knew east side, no. Yes, west side, yes. And she lived two blocks away from the UN. It was a phenomenal apartment. So I just gave her a portion of my salary. And I stayed there for about two years. That was it. Yeah, it was pretty exciting, I must say. I could see the UN out of my, my, you know, out of the, you know, we come out of the building and there it is. Yeah. Well, what was New York like then? It was still hectic. It's still kind of crazy. But you could, I mean, you just walked everywhere. I mean, I obviously couldn't walk from the east side to Radio City, but you, you took public transportation, which is something that I just assumed I didn't like the subway. There was something about the smells <laughs> in the subway. I, I just really like to be above ground. That's it. I like to be on the buses and look at people and watch people. And I guess I was kind of learning things by osmosis that I was going to use later on in life, I guess. But, yeah, it was a nice. Um, and then in 1973, you moved to Los Angeles. I moved to Los Angeles. And you booked days pretty quickly. I did. Well, what happened was I came out here with a show, Follies. And uh, Al Honorado was a casting director at CBS. And he had he was in the audience, and he saw me on the stage. And they were casting a new show, a new soap called Young and the Restless. And Young and the Restless started out as uh, the main family was a musical family. There was a pianist, a singer, uh, and it went on. And so he thought, perfect, I'm going to have her come in. So I went in for the audition. And John Conboy, when I went into his office, he said, where's your blonde hair? Uh, I said, oh, I've never had blonde hair. <laughs> you know, he said, well, all of our, all the, the people in this family have blonde hair. He said, oh, well, but you could play Sally. She was a girl on the other side of the tracks. That, that, uh, so anyway, that's what I auditioned for. But Al Honorado knew that. He wanted to get a piece of film. I didn't have any film on myself. All I had done were commercials and dancing things. And so he took that piece of film and showed it to Betty Corday. And wow. that's kind of how it all happened. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's it amazing. Was, it was pretty exciting. And I came in with seven other girls, and we read. And um, then we two two of us tested. Didn't I didn't know what any of this was. I had never done any of this. So uh, to reading, you know, was like sitting out. I had to go out in the car because I have dyslexia and I didn't really know that, but I knew I couldn't concentrate sitting there with seven other girls reading the same thing that I was reading. So I went out to my car and I just kind of got into what I had to do. And then I went back in and I was the last one to, to audition uh, for them. And then there were two of us that tested. And I remember the girl, Davy Davidson, she <laughs> tested with me and she was a blonde. We were so completely different looking. She was a blonde. She came in just beautifully dressed. And here I came in. I, I was a farm girl. That's what the character was. And I had this little peasant blouse on and jeans. And and the rest is, there you go. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> did, you have, did you have any idea, like, what soap operas were like? No. I, I started watching, though, when I went in, uh, when, when Al Honorado said, we, I want you to go over and test, for, you know, read. And then maybe you'll get a call back. And so I thought, well, what is soap opera? <laughs> because when you live in New York, I was running around for auditions for commercials. So I wasn't home to watch soaps. 
And um, so then I, I got a, yeah, I, I started a crash course. Yeah. yeah, it's a crash course. And it was, it was, it was interesting. I mean, I liked, I couldn't wait till the next day to see what was going to happen. So I'm, I'm one of the fans. I'm a fan. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's kind of what happened. So Maggie was was such a, a different character than we had really seen before on the day's canvas. And, you know, we were introduced to her living on a farm alone and on crutches. Absolutely. What was all of that like well, for you to play? Well, they I, I didn't know any different. But um, the network, I mean, the audience was really kind of thrilled with the fact that that we were um, out on the farm. It was a different look. The skyline was different. It was a farm. It was a farm set, and the character was on crutches. They wouldn't allow her to be in a wheelchair uh, because they wanted people to stand in order to do scenes. They didn't want everyone sitting. So um, that was what they did. They had me pair crutches, and they said, go home and work on this. And that's what I had to do was make sure I knew how to run a house, fix a breakfast with crutches, and, you know, cook meals and and it was, yeah, it was, I, it's a good thing I'm a, a dancer and I know how to move around with this thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And we sang, I mean, the character of Mickey played the guitar and we, that was one of the first scenes we did together. We sang out on the porch and it was just, uh, it was charming. And I think the audience just ate it up and they really, at one point, if I, if I, I mean, I was telling, I was being told the truth at one point they wanted to do a spinoff of that character onto the farm and do another soap. And then they kind of nixed that idea. And then later on, they were going to do it with another couple. I mean, but, but it was, it was just really different. I mean, they had animals, they had tractors. They had, I mean, it was just, uh, it was kind of refreshing. It wasn't a metropolitan, uh, you know, set at all. We don't see a lot of Brookville anymore. Here. We don't <laughs> see a lot of Brookville. Yes, I know. But it was, it was really fun. I mean, we would, you know, I had, I was right. I mean, I had jeans and I had a lot of blouses and I thought, gee, this is just right up my alley because, you know, Virginia's, uh, my, my parents lived and my sister has horses. So I kind of knew what it was to muck around in the mud, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, what do you remember about Maggie and Mickey the early years? And like, what was the set even like then? Well, at, at the time it was a porch and a kitchen and that's all they really showed. Um, and fake grass, which I, it wasn't really fake grass, but it was supposed to be, uh, like just to give it green. Uh, it was simple. It was very, um, they said, just put a base on her and nothing else. She, we wanted her to look very fresh and I had this long red hair and I put it in pigtails or in, in two ponytails or something. I mean, it was always, it was just very easy. Uh, I was very nervous, and I remember my co-star, John Clark, said to me, uh, I said, oh, I'm so nervous. He said, use it. He said, because you're always going to be nervous about something. He said, so just try to use that. And that was kind of the best advice I had gotten um, was to, okay, well, I'm going to be nervous, so I'm nervous, so here we go, (laughs) you know, sweaty palms and all. (laughs) So it was um, simple. It was simpler. Um, it was really more about romance, about this this girl who was a handicapped girl, um, and this man comes onto the farm who is who pays attention to her and kind of doesn't see the crutches. And that was kind of um, that's what I think the audience likes so much about it. 
because that's where you sort of the people in in this world that are uh, that do have a disability what they want what they yearn for is to people not to see it to people just look at them and treat them the way they are and that's kind of what that's what it was for me you know and Maggie Wait, I'm curious anyway. about I'm curious about this whole spin-off idea like do you remember being excited about the idea and then disappointed that it didn't happen? Like, was that a, did it have an impact on well, you? Well, no, because I, I didn't, I was so busy doing what I was doing at the moment. I, it was kind of an afterthought. I mean, NBC thought, well, we'll just spin off another character. We'll spin off another character, you know, on the show. And, but they didn't tell me any of it. This was kind of talked about in the upper echelon of the network. Um, but yeah, it would have been interesting. I'm not sure it would have maintained the audience, but I think the, the middle of the country would have absolutely eaten it up. They would have just loved it because we were doing, we had state fairs and we would go and have all these animals on the set. And, and I, I kind of think they, they, you know, it might have worked, you know. We don't know. I mean, hindsight's wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> That's my favorite kind of sight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, now, Maggie had some really emotional material, like from the get-go. Um, you know, what do you think? What did you think when you heard she was going to be an alcoholic? And what were those scenes like to play? Well, um, they were hard because no one in my family, on either side of my family had um, ever experienced something like that. And I just kind of was like going, okay, well, just tell me if if I'm off, if I'm wrong or something, and I'm just going to, I'll take it there. And then you pull me back if I'm, if I've gone too crazy. Um, it started out with arguments uh, with my, with Mickey. And then um, she lost her daughter. Her natural mother came back. I had adopted a daughter and her natural mother was stalking me kind of hiding. And I kept saying, you know, to Mickey and to Alice and to Tom, you know, someone is, is, I always feel like somebody is watching me and nobody believed me. So, uh, by this time I was walking, by the way, I mean, the, the crutches lasted for two and a half years. I had great biceps, by the way, <laughs> um, but, um, I, they didn't believe me. They just thought I was imagining things. I was in the big city and I, nobody was really stalking me. But she was. She and her lawyer were stalking me and watching Mickey and I and trying to get dirt on us. And um, they did. I mean, uh, I started to drink and they dug up Mickey's background that he had been in a, in a mental institution. That's when he came onto the farm. He had checked himself out of the mental institution. And um, so that's what they used in order to take my daughter away from me. And go back to her natural mother because we were unfit, so to speak. And that was the scene that I submitted for the Emmys that year. And that's, that's when I won. <laughs> so it was, it was, uh, it was heart wrenching. I can remember to this day, that day shooting that scene. Wow. Yeah. Because, um, oof, sorry. I was looking out the window at my daughter leaving. It still gets me God. Oh, well, that's why we do this, isn't it? <laughs> so oh, so Lord. tell us Help. about hearing your name called and winning that Emmy. Well, let me tell you, Frances Reed was in my category and so was Susan Brown. And I don't know the other two people that were in my category, I'm sorry to say, but um you know, there's, there's a part of you, I just wanted 
I was just so pulling for Frances because she was somebody I looked up to. She's someone that helped me as a young girl coming onto the show and not knowing anything about this medium. So when I'm when they're calling out the names, they said Susan and I immediately leaned forward to congratulate Susan Brown. And he said, Rogers. And she turned around to me and she said, it's you. It's you. And I went, oh, my. and I just, I, I, all I could think of was, it was at the New York State Theater, was getting down like 25 steps without falling and then going up eight steps onto the stage. I was like, oh, my Lord, just don't let me fall and, and make a fool of myself. But, yeah, it was, um, it was thrilling. It was so thrilling uh, that I I remembered to thank, uh, you know, everybody I needed to thank as far as the show went. And I forgot to thank my mom and dad. Oh. And, you know, my mom said, I'll never forget that you didn't thank me. <laughs> and I said, oh, mom, you know, I mean, because you know, so much is going through your brain at the time, you know. Um, but, yeah, it was all, it was just surreal. It was surreal, you know. Um, you know, another interesting thing about Maggie was that she really wasn't your typical, like, get married, have kids character, and especially for those times. You know, your character had a complicated road to having kids. There was Janice, her foster daughter, who you mentioned, Melissa, the adoptive daughter. Yeah. So did you ever want her in that time to have her own biological child? Mm-hmm. And, you know, then how did you react when they did the in vitro story, which was so modern well, for that the, time? Yes. Well, the reason for that was because Mickey was sterile. Right, and right. so they had to figure out a way because yes, she was logically, yes, she wanted a child. She wanted a child. And that's when it came to the point of, okay, let's just, let's just do this in vitro story. And Evan Weiland, of course, I thought for years that Evan Weiland was the father. He and his wife wanted a baby and I was going to carry the baby. I mean, this was like unheard of that a character right. would carry a baby for someone else on the show. But yes. Yeah, that was like 81. I 80, mean, that's really exactly, progressive. Exactly. You know? And then the wife gets into an automobile accident and gets killed. So he now, here he is with this baby, that she's had this baby. And he says, I can't. I'm a doctor. I can't be. Uh, I can't. And you want a baby so bad. And you, your husband, you can't have one you take the baby. And that was the beginning of that. Mm-hmm. And then we find out, of course, it wasn't his baby after all. Right. Neil Curtis had switched <laughs> Petri dishes or whatever it was. <laughs> I mean, we really, imagine, just think about this. This was back in 80, 81. And I mean, nobody did these things. Right, right. So we had some forward-thinking writers. Absolutely. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's like landing on the moon. I have to say, <laughs> uh, I just interviewed Lane Davies recently, speaking of Evan, and uh, he said that the best thing that came out of his day's experience was uh, meeting you and, and becoming friends with you. Oh, it was so it was so much fun. It was so nice because you have to remember, for almost 10 years, I had worked only with John Clark. I really hadn't worked with a lot of people on the show. I mean, for three years. He was the only person I worked with other than Hank and uh, on, the, on the farm. Once I moved to Salem, I did get to work then with Francis and with, with uh, McDonald Carey. But basically, I was in, we lived in our own little world. It was still Mickey and Maggie, you know, and, and um, all of a sudden, here she's thrown in with this very handsome doctor who he has to 
she sees him when she goes for checkups for the baby to see how the baby's doing and whatever. And all of a sudden, and John Clark character, Mickey, was not very happy about this, <laughs> you know, uh, because he was, you know, I was his territory, technically. And uh, he just, you know, it was obviously, though, by the time I had the baby and 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 Evan gave us the baby back and whatever. It was it was great. But I loved working with Lane. He was so giving and so he was charming, just charming. I loved it. So I've had some good men to work with. Oh my oh goodness, my Lord, you have. Yes. Ooh, and, and yes, still do. Yes. And still do. Hello. <laughs> yes. And Jed Allen was wonderful to work with. Right. Yeah, he was lovely, lovely man, lovely man. Um, now, shortly after that storyline, it was in 1984 that you were diagnosed uh, with uh, myasthenia gravis, and you had to leave the show yes. for a bit of time. What can you, yes, you tell I did us for a about? Year. Yeah, what was that period for like for you, and coming back like for you? Well, I, I knew physically there was something wrong. I had um, when you're a dancer, you're kind of um, you're keyed into every part of your body because you have to be. That's part of your. That's what you do. You dance, you you know aches and and pains and whatever. And uh, Epsom salt was a dear friend, um, <laughs> but I mean that's just I mean that's what you do. Um, I knew there was something that wasn't right. I didn't quite know what it was. Um, I was uh, running like ten k's and stuff, and and I was very thin. And it was like maybe I better stop that. Maybe I'm I'm pushing myself too much. I always went 110%, and all of a sudden, um, I felt like I had this um, a cold all the time. Not not it, it, might, it was in my throat. It was like I couldn't. <clears throat> I'd clear my throat a lot, and I couldn't. And uh, so I went to the doctor, ear, nose, and throat. No, have you been out of the country? No, you know, and everything was checking out. No, 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 no. There was nothing wrong. But my contract was up, and so in order to um, not let anyone know that there was something wrong because this business still isn't very kind to people that have something. Uh, back then it was really not. So I didn't want anyone to know that I, that something was wrong with me. So between uh, my contract was up in June and between June and August, I went to see nine doctors, each one, you know, saying, no, it wasn't this or, I mean, they were testing me for everything. They were testing me for, uh, MS and Parkinson's and lupus and this and that and whatever. And everything was checking out fine. And so, um, the blood pressure doctor that I went to, he said, why you're not having a stroke at this moment? I don't know because my blood pressure was so high. And I said, well, it's, you know, because everybody's saying that I'm healthy and I know there's something wrong and nobody seemed to be able to know what it was. He said, I'm going to send you to UCLA. I want you to see a doctor over there. And so he did. And within 15 minutes, the doctor said, you have myasthenia gravis. Now, the person who was with me that day was Lana Saunders, who played Marie's sister Marie on our show, who was Mickey's sister on the show. And she was sitting there, and I did not know, because she hadn't told me that she had MS. And when he, she recognized some of the symptoms that I had, and she thought that's what I had. And when he said myasthenia gravis, she started crying. And I looked at her, and then I started crying because I'm thinking, 
oh, I'm going to die. I've got something that's terrible, you know. And he, I said, well, just give me a pill. Let me, and he said, it's not that simple. So they started me on a regimen of one drug, Mestinon, then it went to Imuran, then it went to prednisone. And, uh, but in the, that day, when we finished talking to him, Lana said, let's go and have a, a soda in the cafeteria. We went down to the cafeteria and she said, I have something to tell you. And she told me, she proceeded to tell me she had MS. I just got hysterical. I couldn't believe, you know, because we knew about MS. We knew about Parkinson's. But we, of course, what he said I had, I had no idea what the devil it was. And she said, I was so happy it wasn't MS. She was so relieved for me. That's why she started crying. And I just, uh, so it was a, it was a cry fest. Oh. But anyway, um, she was lovely. She, uh, her and her husband took me to UCLA uh, when I had to be admitted, hospitalized to get the prednisone because prednisone is a wonder drug, but it has hellacious side effects. And after a certain amount of time and certain dosages, um, they start to manifest themselves. And it's called moon face for a reason. Your face gets very, you don't have a wrinkle though. Your, your face gets very large and you have sort of like a spare tire around uh, your middle, but you get well. So that's what it took to get me well. And I was on prednisone from 84 to 95. And that's really a lot of times uh, you never get off of it, uh, but I kept dreaming that I was going to. So um, it happened. That's all I can say. A lot of prayers and a lot of well wishes and a lot of uh, faith um, and uh, a determination on my part because I, I prayed. This is what I prayed for. I went to church and I, I knelt down and I said, if I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do, then show me the way I'm supposed to go. But if I am, get me well. And so, um, sorry, when I get well, when I got better, I thought, okay, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do and I'm not done yet. So that's kind of how it is. I'm not done yet. Wow. Sorry. Um, I know. I, I, I want to come over and hug you, Susan. <laughs> it's just, you know what it is. It's just so, um, it's, it's so real because, you know, you, you think you live a good life and you don't, and you, you understand why people go, but why me? I didn't ever say that, but I thought I've always, I've always taken such good care of myself. I, I never, never did drugs, never drank, I never smoked. And I just thought, what is wrong? What have I done? But it was just something we, my family and I got closer after I was diagnosed and I went, oh my Lord, maybe this was it. Maybe it was, this was supposed to happen. And I always think there's a purpose and you've got to learn or you're going to, it's going to repeat or you're going to get something else. So um, I think that was, you know, we just, it just brought us all together, you know, and I, th I think that's what it is. Family is so important, you know. Well, what was it like for you to come back to the show after that? Um, well, I was still on the prednisone and Al Honorado called me and said, I understand you've been sick. Now, John Clark was, I 
told him never to, not to say anything to anybody, but he did. Uh, cause I guess Al asked him about me and he said, well, I need to tell you something. And so Al called and said, um, we'd like for you to come back. And I said, Oh, you don't know what I look like Al. You know, I said, I, um, I said, when I, when I left, I was so thin. Uh, and I said, um, I just don't look the same. He said, you know what? Let's go have breakfast. Let's go to Dupar's and have breakfast. So we did. And I got there early because I wanted to see his face when he saw me because that was going to make whether that was going to be my decision to come back or not. And he walked in and he waved and he walked down and there was never any recognition that there was anything the matter. Um, And that was the reason I came back. But the first time I did see myself on camera, I turned off the television because it hurt me, you know, and then I thought, nope, you got to see it. This is what you look like. You got to look at it, you know, and I turned it back on and I looked at this face that I didn't recognize. Um, But then I was all even more determined that I was going to get back some sort of, you know, familiarity with me, with myself. And I could look at myself in the mirror and say, hey. There you are. <laughs> uh, oh, my gosh. Well, you stayed on the canvas, you know, until 2003 when Maggie then became a victim of the Salem stalker. Yes. So <laughs> were you surprised? Did you know you'd be coming back? No. Um, I, I thought this was it. And I had just brought my mother out to California. She came out in 97. And uh, I thought, oh, my Lord, I added on to my house. My mother was living with me. She, you know, my my dad had passed away, so it was just me. I was, you know, my salary taking care of us and the house and everything. And I was nervous. I was concerned. Um, and I obviously was uh, trying to get other work, but, um, you know, this business is crazy. Um, and then on two days before April Fool's, I got a call from the Corday office saying that Ken wanted to see me two days later, which was April the 1st. And I went, really? <laughs> I said, come on, you know, you fired me. What else can you do? You know? And they just, she said, no, 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 no. It has nothing to do with April the 1st. I said, oh, okay. So I went and got there early, which I always do. And I was the first one there. And they said, just go into this uh, meeting room. And I was there by myself. And uh, then walks in um, Jim Reynolds and then Matthew Ashford. And then I thought, wow. And then it just one by one, everybody was there except for Francis. And um, I thought, this is really strange. And we're all looking at one another because they said, are we coming back? What's going on? I said, I don't know. And so then they came in and they told us that, yes, we were coming back and we were going over to the set. Now, <laughs> some people were happy to see us, <laughs> but some people were, you know, they had moved on. It had been a year um, and pretty much. And uh, Francis met us there and they brought us out one by one as we passed, as we had been killed off. They brought us back one at a time. And, uh, yeah, it was very surreal, but, uh, in my case, I was just thrilled to death because I thought, okay, everything's fine. Everything's good. Everything's good. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Ken is, um, 
Thank God. <laughs> so theatrical. He's an angel it's, in my such, book. <laughs> it's, it's such a theatrical way to uh, to oh. go about things. My goodness. Oh my lord. Well, it was because I mean, maybe someone, some people did, you know, know or suspect. But I'm kind of in my own little world, you know, I come in and I do my job and, and then I go home and I have a life, you know, like everyone. But uh, I just, I never heard any rumblings and I wasn't, you know, I didn't rub elbows with the brass. So I didn't know anything was, was coming down the pike that we were going to come back. But the audience, you know, was very upset. And uh, the, the fellow that played my husband, John Clark, he said, why don't you kill me off? I want to go. Let her. And yes, she wants to stay. And I mean, everybody was having their own feelings about what was going on. And so, yeah, it was um, it was traumatic, but it was, hey, it was attention getting. Everybody remembers it. <laughs> yep. <You know? laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of Mickey, yeah. uh, yes. the, he uh, passed away on screen and or in Salem time in 2010. Yes. And um, yes. then Maggie, yes. Maggie found love again in a very unexpected place in Mr. Oh my Victor Kiriakis. So were you surprised well, when you were paired with John Aniston? Yes, I was. Yeah. I, he, I think he was too. I think the, the audience just, they just embraced us. I mean, it was like, wow, it's about time she found somebody that was her equal. I mean, because Maggie always kind of stayed in the background as far as Mickey went because he was, you know, uh, and when he passed away, she had to, she had to find her voice. She had to find, uh, she had a big heart and she had to find her voice and who better to come than Victor walking up with some flowers and whatever. And all of a sudden he, it just was sparks. I mean, people just they just made up their own story. They just immediately named us and they said, magic, it's magic, you know? <laughs> and it's like, you know, he wasn't too thrilled with the name. Mm-hmm. He said to me, he said, what is it? You're mag? What am I? Ick? You know, and I said, <laughs> yeah, that's what you are. You know, so it kind of set off the, the, um, down the road, you know, and it was, it was lovely. Yeah. And it was a surprise to both of us. Um, but I always said to him, you know, I always said, you know, I'd, I'm the one wife that doesn't want anything from you. You, you always married people that wanted your money or wanted your name or wanted your, you know, prestige or whatever. And I already, I already had that, you know, I had a, you know, I had run two restaurants. I, you know, I, w- I was a mother. I, I was, I didn't really, I wasn't looking and all of a sudden you, there you were. And I said, how, how exciting. That's 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 what's exciting. That's what the, I think the audience likes so much. I'm just thinking to myself now. Maggie is like front and center, front burning, and and so interestingly, yeah. it seems like um, her sobriety has come back into the storyline. Her struggle to oh, maintain yes. it. Uh, so yes, my yes. goodness, what it, uh, what well, was what, your reaction to that? Well, it was yeah. I was concerned. Uh, well. She is insecure. She's insecure around, you know, certain characters. And Kate is a character that Maggie is weary of. And the minute, that's why she didn't want Victor to rehire her. And um, all, all of a sudden she was, she had these jitters again about that. And then, of course, um, she has her granddaughter who, I mean, when Daniel got killed, that was, tremendously hurtful to her. And the only thing she had to hold on to 
was this little granddaughter. And so, yes, uh, all of this is sort of building up to what, you know, is inevitable <laughs> that she, uh, she can't handle it. You know, can she handle it or can she handle it? And, and that kind of is what's going to happen. You know, we have to see. Well, it's amazing. It's been such a through line of Maggie's character that really hasn't been, it's been there because of uh, Lucas and Brady, but not for herself. And that's so interesting that they're doing it. And I've always, you know, like when we're at a party or something, I always make sure I have a glass that's different than everyone else's. So the audience knows that I'm not drinking, you know, so it's always, I always keep it there. Like they'll put a, like a, you know, a a lemon in my glass or ice in my glass or, or something that, that the audience knows that no, she's not, the toast has to be with something else other than the champagne glass. And, uh, so yeah, I've, I've always kind of kept it there, but, uh, I never thought she'd go back to it. Um. We shall see. We shall see if she does. <laughs> yes, you shall see. <laughs> um, now, this year marks 46 years since yes. you started on the show. Um, Absolutely. Could you ever have imagined when you joined Days that we would have, be having this conversation today? Never. Never. I, um, when Wes Kenny uh, brought me on, he said, well, the character is scheduled for about two and a half to three years. And... I just, to me, listen, when you do a Broadway show, you're lucky if you get a year. So I was thrilled. I mean, I thought, oh, God, great. I don't have to worry about a job for three years. Oh, my God. Anyway, um, and then when they kept renewing my contract, it was like a gift and a privilege. And uh, it afforded me to do things for my parents that um, was, they were, it was beyond my dreams. Um, you know, I sent them on vacations and, and did things that um, daughters do. <laughs> daughters and sons do, I should say. I don't want to be rude. But, um, yeah, I just never thought I'd still be here um, and um, and in good health. Thank you. Um, and that the audience would still want to see me. And you'd still want to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do. Aww. And thank you so much for joining oh, us my today. Pleasure. It was so great to take a walk down Maggie memory lane. Oh, my goodness gracious. I hope it wasn't too boring. Not, not, <laughs> not in the least. <laughs> All right. I love Thanks, you both. Suzanne, you take too. care. Love you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Suzanne Rogers for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast.